It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave. Welcome back to the podcast once again, everybody. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about week nine of the Division Three football season for 2015, the podcast for November 2nd of 2015. Uh, and before we get too far into the show, I want to revisit something I said uh, just kind of as a throwaway last week, that everything happens in Division Three. Uh, and here's the latest case in point, Keith. Everyone was buzzing on Saturday night about Miami's comeback win versus Duke. Best play they've ever seen and stuff like that. Indeed, it had a whole eight laterals, which Keith leaves it seven short of the miracle in Mississippi when Trinity defeated Millsaps in 2007. We have so many games. Everything that you could ever want has seems to have happened in a Division Three game. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to try to review the hundred or so games from from this past weekend, uh, boil it down into a, about an hour here in the podcast, plus talk playoff implications. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, everything amazing. I mean, I'll I put it, this is an easy way to explain it. Um, when we go through, and now that we're a little more organized with the podcast, you know, we go through and, and try to fill in a few categories like game ball and such. One of them is um, off the beaten path highlight. And so I, that's every game that doesn't, you know, it's not a first place team, doesn't have playoff implications, no top 25 implications. And I say on a given week, there are no fewer than 10 results that either end in overtime and with some field goal or or touchdown in the final minute, some kind of crazy finish. And so just boiling that down on a given week is uh, is difficult for, for you and I. And then, you know, when you take it into the, the entire season uh, or the entire history of D3, uh, you know, you, you take that into account. You're right. Every possible record that could have been set, every kind of amazing finish, uh, it's been done before because we just play so many games. Indeed we do, and we played a lot of uh, big games. We played you play about 1,200 games in the course of a season, and it all comes down to the 31 games at the end of the season in the final five weeks. Those are the playoff games, which lead us to the Stag Bowl in Salem, Virginia. It will be Stag Bowl 43 on Friday night, which I believe is December 18th. I should actually mark that down. Friday night, December 18th is uh, Stag Bowl 43 this season, uh, but we have a couple of weeks uh, of regular season left to go. Uh, we'll have a huge playoff selection election debate and uh, then we'll have a uh, you know uh, five rounds of playoffs, including that championship game. So for those of you who are uh, new to the process, or those of you who are not new to the process, we're going to be talking about uh, the playoff basic structure here for a couple of minutes. Um, you know, there are some things that may have changed, or if it's a refresher for those of you who have been around, that's uh, that's that's just fine. But we talk about uh, some of these uh, D3-centric terms, like uh, the pools and the AQs. The AQ is just short for automatic qualifier, which the rest of the world knows is an automatic bid. Uh, and there are three uh, pools of teams that uh, get broken down into the uh, playoff scenario. First thing I'm going to tell you is, as much as uh, Keith and I talk about the D3Football.com Top 25, and we think it's a very good measure of how teams uh, stack up relative to each other, the NCAA doesn't care. It's uh, not part of their selection process. Uh, and, you know, over the course of the last... Um, well, 16 years that we've been following very closely, 17 years that we've been following the selection process, and the 13 years uh, years or so that we've had a top 25 pull of our own, um, we've finally just kind of come to accept that uh, some of the teams that are highly ranked in our poll just aren't going to get a good shot in an at-large bid. So Keith and I may not have the sense of outrage that uh, you might want us to. Uh, perhaps the folks in Indianapolis have just beaten us down into, sub into submission over these sorts of things, but it is kind of the the way it is as much as uh, uh as much as keith we still get this on selection sunday people blaming us for not putting their team in i would love to have that power um keith are you available sure. on, on selection sunday to do that yeah me you and uh and wally wabash can uh, can get together and and hash this thing out pretty quickly in fact you guys uh you will get together and 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 project a, ba uh, a bracket Usually he's about 30, 31, 31 and a half projections, correct? Yeah, that's about right. So, so I mean, we, in, in all honesty, we could put together the playoffs. And, uh, and if they gave us uh, free reign with the budget, we wouldn't, you know, we'd, we'd do it a little differently than they do it because uh, we wouldn't have the travel restrictions in place. As Pat said, the, uh, the top 25 hours has, has no bearing in the matter. Um, what you'll need to familiarize yourself with this coming week uh, on Wednesday November 4th, and again on Wednesday, November 11th, and then on Selection Saturday night slash Sunday, the 15th, 
is the NCAA's regional rankings. Those are the rankings you'll need to be concerned with at this point. Um, there's a committee in each region made up of coaches, ADs, people who are actually in the game who will rank 10 teams in each of the four regions. Uh, so there'll be 40 teams to ranked. Um, but those regional rankings are very important because um, they'll, they'll play a big part in how at-large teams are selected. And there's also a criteria. We'll discuss the playoff criteria here in a second. But there's one called results against regionally ranked opponents. So you need to pay attention to those uh, regional rankings that come out on the 4th, the 11th. And again, uh, they'll come out before um, they select the field, but we won't see that final ranking. Those are important because um, one of the playoff criteria is basically, to put in layman's terms, wins against other really good teams. So there's 25 automatic bids for our 32-team uh, field. So uh, you know, first of all, remember that that locks up uh, you know, 25 over 32. I'll get my, uh, my eighth grader in here to help me out with that. <laughs> but uh, basically, that is 78% uh, of the playoff field already accounted for. Uh, there's no decisions going into that. Would, for, when you're looking at the bracket as a newbie and thinking, why is this 7-3 and three team in the playoffs? Because they got an automatic bid, just like every other sport that every other other level of the NCAA that people are familiar with. So there's 25, those are those 25 conferences. And basically it's everybody but the American Southwest Conference and the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference, because those two conferences do not have seven full division three members uh, in their membership that play football. So there's one bid, however, set aside for those teams and anybody who's an independent or, um, you know, such as Finlandia or Maranatha, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, that is called Pool B. That is the uh, the the ones that are set aside for non-automatic qualification conferences. So when we've been talking about the teams in Texas really chasing this one Pool B bid over the course of the uh, past few weeks, this is what we're talking about. There's that one spot set aside just for them. Nobody else can have access to that one bid. And then the other six to get to the total of 32 are uh, what's called Pool C. They're the true at-large teams, runners-up in any conference, whether it has an automatic automatic bid or not is eligible for one of those yeah we yeah go ahead oh you can go ahead as well well so i was just going to say we've uh, we, we've been through this uh we went through this long period uh, decades ago now where it was just a 16 team playoff and then we had 28 teams of, of uh, playoffs for a few years and uh starting a, about a decade ago we got up to a, a 32 team playoff and we're basically locked in at that size uh the ncaa uh membership the division three members who make these sorts of rules are just not going to let it get any bigger because it's so difficult to add yet another entire week of playoffs so we already have a five-week playoff which is larger than any other football playoff it's larger than any other division three playoff in any sport so we have to be uh, unfortunately we have to be pretty happy we have the 32 yeah 32 is is half the season right five a five-week postseason in a 10-week or a 10-game regular season uh, the playoffs are already half as long as as the season they can't add a six week so we're capped at 32. Uh, a couple other important distinctions they will select those 32 teams the selection committee which is made up of two members of each of those regional ranking committees that we talked about so that will give uh, eight members of the selection committee um, Usually, again, coaches, ads, uh, folks who are who are actually in this game and who've been doing, who've been following these teams the entire season. So there'll be an eight-member national selection committee. Those folks will select the 32 teams first. The 25 automatic bids obviously are selected for them, so they're really only working on picking the final seven teams. They'll select those 32 teams first, then they'll match them up and put them in, which eliminates questions that we tend to get on Twitter, like. Um, does how close this team is to another team is that factor in whether they get in or not? They're, they're really that's not a factor. And there's a, a published list of playoff criteria that um, that will help select those final seven teams, the six at large bids and the one pool B bid. Generally, it boils down to uh, these these five, and some of them just don't come into play very often. But uh, the five are, of course, uh, just your results. Results against uh, regional competition, or in this case, uh, in generally in the case of football and, and in most Division three sports now, it's just results against all Division three opponents. Um, and then it is uh, strength of schedule, and that strength of schedule against Division three opponents. There's a listing of that on our website, by the way, if you go in under the... Uh, under the news drop-down menu, strength of schedule is one of the options there. And you can see uh, numbers based on the actual calculation that the NCAA uses. 
um, and it's uh, results against uh, regionally ranked opponents, um, the teams that are other teams within this regional ranking. There are 10 teams ranked in each region. Uh, that's important to uh, remember. It's only those 10 that are considered regionally ranked. Uh, some years in the past, if you were ranked in the first poll, you were considered ranked throughout the second week and the third week, the final week of the process. But that's, for some reason, no longer the case. No, I won't get into the nitty-gritty of that. Uh, and then, um, of course, head-to-head -head competition is important and competition against common opponents. But often, we're in this situation where we're comparing a team from, say, Pennsylvania against a team from Indiana or Illinois or Ohio or Minnesota, and there just aren't a lot of opportunities for crossover, especially if you're in a conference that's playing eight or nine conference games. There's just not a lot of data there. So we're, it, it's almost always focused on those first three, your results, um, your uh, results against ranked opponents and your strength of schedule. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. We've got a, we've got five main criteria. A couple of them hardly ever come into play because, again, one loss percentage uh, that sometimes doesn't come into play because you're looking at two nine and one teams next to each other. So that's usually even. They don't have a head-to-head -head matchup or a common opponent. So it really strongly. Um, depends on the results against regionally ranked opponents and the D3 strength of schedule, which um, the last bit of minutia here, I think, um, is two-thirds your opponent's winning percentage <laughs> and then one-third of your opponent's opponent's winning percentage, which in layman's terms means <laughs> if you play good teams from good conferences or if you play bad teams from a good conference, you get some credit for having scheduled good teams in your in the strength of schedule calculation wow you did go deep there that's a i was not planning on going that far um but that's good uh so as keith mentioned the first regional ranking is is coming up this wednesday and, and the reason why it's i mean obviously it's always important at the end of week nine um because the regional ranking is always coming up next week but you know we have a, a game we had a game this week in which uh a team that uh has been highly ranked in the national polls all season and pretty much all decade uh lost and goes into this pool c consideration and so one of the reasons why uh pool c again those are the at-large teams one of the reasons why i really want to have this discussion uh, in this particular podcast is because there's been a lot thrown about well you know there's oh this team's a lock for pool c this team is a lock for pool c we only have six of these so i'm not even sure how many reasonably can be considered locks when we only have six of these spots to begin with um so if, if we were i tried to like rattle off a few of them uh on twitter on saturday for example uh if we were to consider whitewater a lock maybe because you know they've done really well in the past that doesn't necessarily translate over to this season although i would be really surprised if they uh got left out um you know similarly mary harden baylor they've done well in the playoffs in the past uh, right now their strength of schedule is not very high but uh you know numbers will change because the strength of schedule calculation only takes into account the games you've already played. So if you're like, say, Guilford, and you face, uh, I think it's Emory and Henry and Hampton Sydney in the final two weeks, that low strength of schedule is definitely going to take a big jump because you haven't played the good teams in your conference yet. Similarly, Mount Unions is going to go up, uh, even though it's not going to be a factor because they're going to be 10-0 uh, and in the tournament regardless. Uh, but Mount Union hasn't played Baldwin Wallace, and they haven't played John Carroll yet, so their numbers will go up as well. Um, you know, it, not to dig too deep into the weeds I've, I've made some notes on some numbers here just to look at for example uh whitewater they've got one division three loss uh, and when we're talking about records basically eight and one and nine and one and seven and one against division three they're all pretty much considered the same um they really kind of run them down into zero loss teams who of course are generally in one loss teams and two loss teams so just keep that in mind it doesn't matter um yeah keith wants to say something well, I didn't know if you needed me to jump in here or not, but um, there are 28 one-loss teams as we sit here recording this podcast today. Not all of them are Pool C candidates, but there's going to be certainly more than the than the final six um, yeah. that we have. And and right, basically, what right now, if you're a fan of one of those teams who's in the Pool C mix, let's just say St. John's fan, um, you want to familiarize yourself with these other teams that are on the bubble and root against as many of them as possible. So. Um, <laughs> Teams that, I'm not going to say locks, but if, if I had to pick today without really, really crunching the numbers, uh, here are some strong Pool C candidates if they finish 9-1, 8-1 with with, uh, with just one loss. Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor, 
will be dumped into Pool C because Harden Sims gets the the Pool B bid, so they'll be in the group with everyone else. Obviously, that's uh, an assumption that we've made. But if Harden Simmons continues to win out, uh, they would be the lock, I would think, for that Pool B bid. Okay, Illinois Wesleyan. Now, this is a team that, as of today, looks like a solid Pool C candidate. They play, they host Wheaton eight and zero next week. Um, that that game has uh, Pool A implications um, because North Central is still in the mix as well. But if Illinois Wesleyan wins that game, that makes the CCIW runner-up a a factor in Pool C. So you kind of want to root for you want to root for Wheaton in that one. Yeah, I guess so. We, you want you want them to knock Illinois Wesleyan out of consideration and off of the bubble, right? And then and then North Central would also be out of the bubble too by virtue of their um they will have lost to Wheaton, so Wheaton would clinch. Uh if Illinois Wesleyan wins that, it brings um a, a pool C team in that wouldn't otherwise be in. So if you're a Guilford fan or or you know, Case Western or whatever, you want you you'd want to see that CCIW result break your way. So UMHB uh, potentially Illinois Wesleyan Warburg is a is a strong pool C candidate right now. They're stuck behind Dubuque in Iowa in in for their conference race, but uh, but they're seven and one overall. St. John's is a, is probably the strongest maybe of all of them, um, uh, because they're behind St. Thomas, who's eight and zero, but they're seven and one, five and one. But the Johnnies uh, still have to play Bethel here in the final couple of weeks. Uh, there there's some other big Mayak games as well, so that could that could shake things up. Uh, Whitworth. Is another one. I don't know how strong. I, I don't think Whitworth's schedule is very strong, but they're seven and one, stuck behind Linfield in a very strong conference. They may shake out as a, as a pretty solid one. And uh, and of course, Wisconsin Whitewater behind uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh. That would be a solid um, Pool C selection as of today. Uh, which would leave a, here, here are just a few teams that are currently seven and one. Um, and right now, you know the the path. To, for them in Pool C may not be um, very wide open. Uh, Guilford, Case Western Reserve, which still has a chance um, to to beat Thomas Moore and, and be the Pool A team, but uh, but right now we count them behind Thomas Moore. Uh, DePaul, they have Wabash in Week 11. Um, whoever shakes out in in the MAC, uh, Stevenson, Albright, DelVal, all seven and one right now. One of them is going to be an automatic qualifier. The other two may end up uh, on the bubble. They don't all play each other. Uh, Albright and Stevenson play this week, but all the rest of them—it's uh, not like they, you know, they're guaranteed to uh, to knock each other out. Moravian seven and one already lost to Johns Hopkins. Um, they're they're still uh, on the bubble here. Um, I think that's about the 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 strongest of them. Did I say Guilford already? You did. Uh, yep. Not counting John Carroll um, because they still have to play Mountain Union. Going to assume a loss there, but that's a game that Pool C folks would want to root against because if John Carroll somehow beats. Mount Union, then uh, just just as as uh, Mary Harden, Baylor, and Whitewater are now in in the Pool C mix, Mount Union would be in that case as well. Basically, if you're a uh, if you're a fan of a team that definitely needs to get an at large bid, you want to root for all the favorites in all of the conferences. You want to root for. Uh, you want to root for um, Wabash to beat DePaul in the Monon Bell game, for example. So as Keith mentioned, Wabash doesn't get thrown into the at-large pool because Wabash would fare pretty well there, I would think. Um, you know, you would want to root for Guilford to pick up another loss here in the course of the next few weeks, unless, of course, you are a Guilford fan, in which case you want to root for a win and then root for other teams to lose. Um, Keith, you mentioned Whitworth's at-large uh, status. Uh, they are they do have one loss, obviously. They have a pretty good strength of schedule now, but they haven't played Willamette yet, and they haven't played Lewis and Clark, and those teams are a combined 2-12. and 12, So Whitworth's strength of schedule is going to go down. Uh, Wartburg, you mentioned. Wartburg's strength of schedule right now is not very good. Um, you mentioned St. John's being one of the best teams on the board. St. John's beat Dubuque, and of course Warburg, as we know, lost to Dubuque, so that's gonna um, that's gonna make sure that Warburg is at least behind St. John's and maybe some other teams as well. Uh, they finish with Simpson and Loris, and those teams are a combined uh, seven and nine right now, so that's gonna be pretty much a wash for uh for Warburg in terms of strength of schedule they would be the classic Keith the the classic uh one loss team that hasn't beaten anybody who's regionally ranked and has a very vanilla strength of schedule it'd be interesting to see how they fare on selection Sunday if they uh if they are indeed in the at-large pool well there are there are actually a few more too that are a little further down the list that could end up in this group uh Olivet we talked about if uh if Albion clinches um Rose Holman right now seven and one stuck behind Franklin no chance to to play them later and and 
um, play their way in. So that could be um, there. There are going to be some teams that maybe finish this thing nine and one and don't have a really strong case because they haven't played many regionally ranked opponents. Uh, the flip side of it is someone like St. John's. This is where you'd want to watch those regional rankings that come out on Wednesday because a team like Dubuque, which is um, right now in the lead in its conference, but not necessarily a top 25 team, may not be a regionally ranked team. But if they are regionally ranked, that helps St. John's, who beat them early in the year. That helps uh, wisconsin Platteville, who beat them earlier in the year. So, uh, And that also um, would help Wartburg because even though Wartburg didn't beat Dubuque, just having a result, and, and that's the way the criteria is specifically worded, a result against regionally ranked opponents. We, we tend to consider one loss against a good team better than not having played a good team at all. The, uh, there, like I said earlier, there end up being 10 teams in each of these four regional rankings, obviously east, north, south, and west, based on how the Division Three football landscape is broken out. Um, I tried earlier on uh, uh, earlier this afternoon to kind of jot down who could be ranked in the West, and here's why this sort of thing is important. Um, if you figure there's uh, there's five teams, probably six, seven, or eight even that are out of, that are definitely going to be ranked. Linfield will be ranked, St. Thomas, UW Oshkosh, uh, and then St. John's and Whitewater, um, and then I would presume Platteville. Probably Whitworth, maybe St. Norbert because they're undefeated, even though their schedule's not that great. Um, and then uh, Dubuque possibly because they've because uh, they've beaten uh, beaten Wartburg and their uh, losses are to regionally ranked opponents that would help them. Um, and then Laverne is a possibility. They're the uh, one loss team that leads the Skyac. Um, uh, or if Wartburg is ranked, uh, is kind of. Uh, dovetailing on what Keith mentioned, that definitely helps uh, a, a team like Dubuque move higher up in the rankings. If Concordia is ranked, that helps a team such as St. John's or, or somebody else who has, has beaten or played Concordia Moorhead. And so, you know, the fact that we can't even necessarily know uh, on Selection Sunday who those 10 teams are that are ranked in a particular region makes it really difficult to then project out because that can have a ramification all across the entire selection process because you're comparing the best team from the west against the best teams from the east north and south and you know if if the west team has a game against a regionally ranked team that we don't think is a regionally ranked team that makes the whole thing really difficult to project and that that we have that discussion pretty much every year i'll say one other thing too um you know we've kind of talked about this in somewhat generic terms but also there will be more specific breakdowns of the uh, playoff process and um legitimate as much as uh, a projection can be uh more legitimate at least more uh fully thought through projections as we get closer to selection sunday yeah, I think this is the time of year where it just gets really fun because you have Saturday's games, Sunday snap judgments, and Monday the podcast will sort of put Saturday's results into into focus. And then Wednesday, it's almost like a whole another week of games when those regionally rankings rankings come out. Maybe not a whole another week of games, but it's it's. Um, all that is, you know, like something that we wait on. And is it coming out of two thirty? Is it coming out of four thirty? Oh. When it comes, when it comes out, um, the reactions, you know, on Twitter and on the message boards and all that, um, kind of fire up a little bit because the, these these regional regional rankings are really important as far as uh, playoff criteria go. And there's so much trickle down from them and from the results on Saturday that it, that it gives us all Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday to kind of break it down and then turn forward to the next week's games. Don't get me started about the whole, we don't know exactly, we can't tell you exactly what hour they might come out on Wednesday. But watch, uh, watch us on Twitter uh, at D3Football. Uh, keep an eye on the website because uh, we'll have the rankings as soon as we can possibly get them up on any particular Wednesday afternoon. That is one of the things we uh, definitely focus on. Um, and six at-large teams doesn't sound like a lot uh, out of a, a pool of basically 26-plus conferences, but this is actually not the smallest it's been. Uh, a couple of times, even in the 32-team playoffs, we've had just five of these at-large bids. Uh, that's happened twice as, regionally as, or as recently as 2013. So it could be worse. It might get worse over the course of the next few years with some of the changes uh, to conference affiliation coming around, but, um, you know, We'll, uh, we'll, we'll burn those bridges when we come to them sometime in 2017, 2018, 2019. Uh, but, Keith, the uh, last thing I'll say on my soapbox about this sort of thing is I also see a lot of people talking about, well, why does this conference deserve an automatic bid? And, and in all honesty, I think I do not have a problem with every conference uh, that qualifies that has the seven teams getting an automatic bid. Uh, first of all, you know, 
what are these uh, conferences going to have to shoot for? Uh, you know, how do we get them to get better? Would they be pushing away uh, the opportunity to take on better competition in the hopes that they might go 10-0 and 0 in one of their bottom five leagues and, and try to get in the playoffs that way? Um, the, as far as, as, as we can tell, uh, there's has not been a situation in this entire 16-plus uh, years of this where we've left a team out that could win the national championship uh, Mount Union and Whitewater have kind of taken care of that for us. They've been so dominant uh, for so many of those years that uh, you know it's hard to fathom a team that didn't get in having an opportunity to beat them. But I think we're getting uh, we're getting all of the national championship contenders into the field. That's what I'm getting at, and I do not have a problem with uh, letting the champions of uh, of every conference have an opportunity to play in Week 12. Yeah, I mean, sure. The deal is is access. You want all the conferences to have, and, and therefore all the teams to be able to win their way into the playoffs on the field, to not have to depend on the regional rankings or some other subjective ranking um, or, or the pollsters to get in, which is things folks have hated about college football for years. D3 fixed that uh, a long time ago, back in 1999, and it's worked out pretty well. Now, we have had um, situations where the third-place team in a very tough WIAC or CCIW um, doesn't have a route to get in because there are so many automatic bids across the country that there, there are only six Pool C bids, and those are the breaks. But the argument for that team is, well, you had a chance. You know, if you finished third in your own conference, what's the chance that you were going to win the national championship, right? You were, you were, uh, you know, you had your chance to to get in um, by winning your conference. So the deal is access for everyone, and that kind of ensures fairness because uh, there's no team in the country that, that starts the season without a legitimate way to get into the postseason. All right, moving on to game balls. Uh, we have obviously not touched on a lot of the big games of this week, but we will touch on them through the, the course of this uh, conversation over the rest of this podcast. Uh, and for game ball, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go big and give my game ball to Guilford quarterback Matt Pawlowski, who threw for 611 yards and seven touchdowns to lift the Quakers to a 52-49 win at Catholic. Uh, that total is the most in Division Three this season and the ninth best total in Division Three football history, while his 648 total yards are number five in a single game all time. Pretty nuts, and it made uh, TJ Tutoni's 394 yards an afterthought on Saturday. And you know, Keith, when I first looked at it, we've had so many games uh, with great uh, performances and, and great quarterbacking numbers like, oh, 611. That's not bad. That's pretty good. Oh, wait, that's a lot. Yeah, you absolutely glaze over it because, again, uh, so much happens in D3 on a given weekend and over the course of a season that big numbers that alone, big numbers alone, don't don't necessarily amaze us. Um, as far as my game ball, I was all set to give it to Case Western Reserve's Adrian Cannon and the Spartans defense that intercepted six passes in a win against Wash U. But then Jesse Ramos ran right past his man on the final drive for Harden-Simmons, hauling in a game-winning 57-yard touchdown pass and giving the 13-ranked Cowboys a, uh, a rare upset against Mary Harden Baylor. The Cowboys hadn't beaten the Crusaders since 2004, a run of 13 losses over 11 seasons that included heartbreakers, blowouts, and playoff defeats. Mary Harden Baylor, meanwhile, had won 61 regular season games in a row and 39 straight American Southwest Conference games. And after the crew put together a rather easy nine play, 78 yard drive to regain the lead with four minutes left in that game, Ryan Breeden basically just dropped back on third down and with good protection, let one fly to Ramos. The catch was Ramos' 10th of the game, and uh, Harden-Simmons finished off the final upset with a couple of sacks. Ramos finished 10 catches for 223 yards, two touchdowns, and changed the complexion of the top 25 and the playoff picture, not to mention the recent history in Texas. And for that, he gets my game ball. I'm going to divert us out of our rundown just a moment to talk a little bit more about this game, Keith. Uh, really back and forth, especially in the fourth quarter. Um, and it was a kind of a game where uh, seemingly in the previous weeks, uh, sometimes Mary Harden-Baylor's been a little bit slow to get going, and they would definitely seem that way on Saturday. Uh, and when you play a, a really good team, that's something that's going to cost you. Yeah, but you know, to be honest, I watched that the second half of that game, and when Mary Harden Baylor drove down the field and scored, and it wasn't a nine-play drive as I mentioned, but they they it seemed easy. Um, they got down there so quickly, they punched it in with four minutes left. Uh, Harden Simmons had, had basically taken a, uh, a three-point lead and was hoping that would hold up, or hoping at least. Uh, forced Mary Harden Baylor to kick a field goal. Mary Harden Baylor just right down the field, went up 26-22, 
And I kind of thought that was it for Harden Simmons, that they'd missed their chance. And they came back three plays later and, uh, and, and hit a shot to, to Ramos. And um, that, um, that play, of course, you know, changed the, uh, the, the picture across the country. I think we see this happen with the dominant teams from time to time, whether it's Linfield, Mount Union, Whitewater, they're on the ropes in the fourth quarter, and the dominant team, the one that we're used to always finding a, a way to win, finds a way to win. And in this case, Mary Harden-Baylor found a way to take the lead, and Harden-Simmons was the one that found the way to win. And I do want to point out here a special note to all the listeners. So Keith bypassed the cornerback with three picks for the wide receiver who right who ran right past the defensive back. So you know he's serious, true respect uh, in his game ball right there. Uh, let's see. My team on the rise in the poll, certainly a, an interesting week in the poll in that there were obviously a significant number of teams who moved up thanks to Mary Harden Baylor losing. Uh, honestly, I was kind of guilty myself of hanging on to the crew too long and just automatically penciling them into that number three spot on my ballot, even though they showed signs of, you know, who knows the, the stuff I was talking about a couple of minutes ago. But uh, that win gives either Wesley or Oshkosh a chance to get into the top three. Uh, we're recording this on, this on Sunday afternoon, so the voting is still open. It's kind of too close to call as to which team that's going to be, but it's going to be one of them. Uh, meanwhile, I think it's notable as to who's not going to get into the top 10 because of that, uh, and uh, neither Johns Hopkins or Thomas Moore is going to move into the top 10 because Harden-Simmons passed them, and Mary Harden-Baylor did not fall behind them. They stayed ahead of them. Sure. Uh, I actually think St. Thomas should be on voters' minds for that number three spot as well. Uh, they played a strong schedule. Wesley has five results against teams with winning records, which is uh, which is pretty good. And of course, Oshkosh has had a, had a great season as well. Um, and yeah, you, you had to figure out where do you want to drop Mary Harden Baylor to, um, and, and that was part of the thinking that we that voters had to do on uh, on Saturday night, Sunday morning. Uh, I didn't find the movement on the top ten to be nearly as difficult to suss out as the teams below number fifteen on my ballot. I rearranged the top 10. Harden Simmons floated to number seven. Mary Harden Baylor dropped to 10. One spot behind St. John's, one ahead of Wabash. I had North Central and Illinois Wesleyan 15 and 16 on my ballot last week. Uh, but the margin in that game, it was 33-15, meant I couldn't keep them side by side. So on my ballot, there's a huge drop off at 15, you know, between 15 and 16 that ultimately ended up with with my putting Washington and Lee, a team I somewhat disparaged on this very podcast a few weeks ago after seeing them live. I put them at 16. Texas Lutheran also has four results against teams with winning records. St. Lawrence has five. Uh, so those are my next two teams. And those teams were more risers because someone had to fill the spots on the ballot vacated by uh, by Salisbury, Illinois Wesleyan, Cortland State, and Concordia Moorhead, who each were between 16 and 20 for me, and they each lost on Saturday. So it's another reminder that sometimes the poll isn't so much a reflection of what just happened that past week as it is an encapsulation of all the circumstances this season to date. Yeah, and uh, talking about teams taking a fall, I, I was kind of struggling to figure out who to talk about here. Uh, I don't like to point out the obvious ones, and obviously Mary Harden-Baylor falls uh, from number three uh, overall last week to what's looking like it's going to be number 10. Uh, you talked about the drop-off at the bottom of your ballot, and mine is pretty similar. It's exactly at the same spot, uh, and I'm not voting for teams such as John Carroll and Wartburg, and I wasn't going to vote for Illinois Wesleyan unless they won on Saturday. I actually had not had them on my ballot at all, even at 7-0. and So my number 16 is similar to years actually i have st lawrence there and wnl uh isn't too far behind i've kind of a motley group of teams in my 16 to 25 uh range in a sense the teams that have fallen off of my ballot actually fell off previously sometimes uh even weeks ago and along those same lines for my team that'll take a fall i, I tried to hang on to Cortland state in the top 25 as a show of respect for the strength of the empire eight but i could no longer do it Interestingly, the Red Dragons 42-28 loss came against Morrisville State, which beat St. Lawrence 28-20 back in week one. Cortland was number 19 on my ballot last week, and St. Lawrence slotted in at 18 this week. One could certainly make a case for the Red Dragons as playing one of the only schedules in D3 without an easy week, as every one of their opponents is currently 500 or better except Hartwick, which is 3-5, and five, mostly because every other Empire 8 team is 500 or better, and someone has to lose those face-offs. The Hawks, by the way, just beat Buffalo State 41-30 on Saturday. 
So Cortland is 7-2 and two with two losses in the past four weeks and multiple weeks before that where it barely survived. Now, maybe a voter could make a case for a 6-2 and two Alfred, but I just can't find an Empire 8 team I felt was or I feel is top 25 worthy, even though eight teams in that conference are pretty darn good. I know I keep saying that on each podcast, but I feel like it's such an unprecedented thing that it deserves the repeated recognition. A lot of discussion this week on, on our message board and, and maybe in the week prior, Keith, about the Empire 8. Uh, is it is it just balanced or is it really, really good and balanced? Uh, I think maybe both of you, both of you and I fall on the uh, on the really good and yet balanced uh, side. And I think there's some people who just feel like if you don't have a top 25 team, if you don't have one team, you can point to clearly at the top, which is the best team in the league, that that league just can't be considered good. Yeah, I feel like the the exact opposite. That some some teams float up pretty high because the lack the lack of competition or the lack of a obvious contender in in their league. You know, a good a good example is Mount Union, uh, Johns Hopkins. Some years, but this year they seem to have like three or four teams that are giving them a good push. Uh, Hobart had done that for many years in in the Liberty League until uh, this year. Uh, things are they're changing in that league. I think a lot of times we vote for teams that are seven and one, eight and zero oh, because they're seven and one, eight and zero, oh, or six and one, or whatever week we're voting. Um, and it's important to take into the strength of, of of who they played. But after two or three losses, you do have to kind of give the respect to the teams that are getting it done every week. You know, someone who won't take a fall is North Central. I'm not sure how many times I saw on Twitter or on the message board or on the comments on the top 25 ranking page itself questions about why there was a 4-3 and three team in the top 25. You know, all you have to do is click on the name or tap on it if you're on your phone. See who they've played, folks. Uh, and, you know... Uh, all of those questions, North Central made those questions moot with their win against Illinois Wesleyan on Saturday. Yeah, and not only that, it's the, it's who they've played, how often, and uh, and what the margin in those games were. They have five results against uh, winning teams, or two and three in those games, but Platteville needed overtime to beat them. Platteville's ranked. Wesley needed a two-point conversion with seven seconds left to beat them. Wesley, of course, is in the top five. And uh, and Wheaton beat them 17-9. to nine, And then they have um, a win now over a team that was top 25 in, in Illinois Wesley. That's a, that's a very heavily beaten path. Let's move off of that. Uh, and off the beaten path, my highlight for this week is uh, from uh, Northfield, Minnesota, where Hamlin and St. Olaf played an exciting game far from the MIAC leaders, uh, one in which the lead changed hands several times and wasn't settled until freshman quarterback Justice Spriggs hit Jamie and Mays for a 20-yard touchdown pass with 20 seconds left, and Cale Werdeman hit the extra point for the 31-30 win. Uh, Hamlin is trying to be at least the best of the bottom three in the MIAC, and with Augsburg and Carlton still left on the schedule this season, Hamlin could still finish 500 for the first time. I have that here somewhere. Uh, it was not on the website. They have not been uh, 500 or better since 99. When we start, here we go. 1997, when current coach Chad Rogoszewski was a senior running back for the Pipers. By the way, uh, the Pipers won this game without leading rusher Austin Duncan, who did not play on Saturday. My off-the-beaten-path highlight, there are actually two, imagine that, uh, two uh, North Coast games, uh, neither involving Wabash or Wittenberg, that I thought deserved some shine here. Worcester had lost five in a row and was headed for six when Kenyon took a two-touchdown lead halfway through the fourth quarter. But the Scots staged an amazing rally behind QB Gary Muntean. I hope I'm saying his, his name right. could be Muntean, Muntean. Um, after he completed a second and 16 pass for 22 yards uh, that started the rally. Worcester scored in seven plays, went three and out on defense, then scored on an 11-play drive with a couple of big third-down conversions to tie the Lords at 42. Then the first play after that, Kenyon completes a pass. The receiver has the ball stripped. Worcester takes over with 238 left, scores a go-ahead touchdown with 44 seconds left, and survives for the 49-42 win. Meantime, one loss, Denison, again, North Coast game. Uh, they kicked a, a field goal to take a one-point lead on one loss, DePaul, with a minute 43 to go. DePaul converts a fourth and four while driving in the field goal range, and Marco Adams connects from 42 for the game-winning kick with 2.5 seconds left. The Tigers are now 7-1 and one and making it seem like this year's Mona and Bell clash with Wabash won't be one where we throw the records out because an at-large playoff bid could be on the line as well as the uh, NCAC title. I'll have a, one more NCAC game to bring up later, which is also similarly far from the beaten path, but I'll move on to most surprising result 
Uh, I'm going to go with Earlham taking Hanover to overtime on Saturday before falling 35 to 34. Uh, not necessarily surprising that Earlham lost, but let's, I'm going to just talk this through here. So in the middle of that game, Earlham actually became the team with the longest active losing streak in Division Three as the Quakers came in having lost 22 in a row, and Hamilton got itself off the schneid in a game that ended about 4.15 p.m. Eastern time. So Earlham, they kicked off at 2.30. They had a chance to pass that ignominious mark off pretty quickly. Uh, in a season where the Quakers simply haven't been competitive pretty much the entire year, they scored with five seconds left in regulation and hit on a two-point conversion to tie Hanover at 28-28. Uh, in overtime, they go first, they miss the extra point, and Hanover hits its, uh, hits its PAT to win 35-34. Um, but this game is also notable in that uh, it's a contained Earlham's first lead of the season. Previously, the closest the Quakers had come was being tied midway through the second quarter. Uh, so Nick Johnson started his first year at head coach there really behind the eight ball with a really long losing streak and a very short roster. But who knows? Perhaps this is a spot where that turnaround for that program will begin. Well, there were a handful of surprising results on on Saturday, not just that one, Pat. Um Christopher Newport whomping Salisbury 51-39 and holding the ball for 39 minutes. You know, Salisbury is a team you think would would possess the ball um, for, for a long time in a game because they barely throw it. Uh, that was a big surprise. So was Puget Sound beating Pacific Lutheran 6-2. Well, I, was, I was waiting for your baseball score joke, but... Uh, yeah, not this time. <laughs> the, the weather was pretty rough in the Pacific Northwest on Saturday, so maybe that excuses the, the 6-2 score. Um, but probably the biggest surprises weren't in games where I was surprised by who won, but just by the margin. Uh, Widener, 48, Lycoming, 7, in a game that many years has been won to decide the MAC title. St. John Fisher, 34, Ithaca, 0, in a game that many years has been won to decide the Empire, 8. Uh, we knew Ithaca was up and down up and down on offense, but the shutout was surprising. Yeah, it's more, Dubu- than, more than a decade since the Bombers have been shut out. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dubuque, 42, Loris, 7. I mean, that Loris offense had been on fire, and the Spartans held it to 218 yards. And, uh, and after seeing St. John's and, and Platteville in the season's early going, not to mention Warburg in the conference schedule, facing that Duhawks attack wasn't all that daunting, apparently, for the Spartans. And, uh, and one more uh, margin of victory uh, that, was, that was surprising on Saturday was in the uh, Albion-Olivet game, a clash that was you know, supposed to, to decide and, and pretty much has decided the, uh, the MIAA. Uh, it just wasn't very close. That uh, that Dubuque Loris game, it's a crosstown rivalry. That's I think that's called the Spartan Key game or something like that. But that doesn't even matter. Uh, you know, the two Division three schools in the city of Dubuque and, and uh, University of Dubuque has now had it uh, on Loris for quite a few years. Uh, Loris had, had had come in with a chance to uh, get into the driver's seat in the Iowa Conference standings, and Dubuque uh, completely slammed the door on that one. Uh, stat of the week. Um, this is the other example of the everything happens in Division Three. Is that uh, Puget Sound Pacific Lutheran game that uh, Keith mentioned a minute ago, or if you prefer the the PLU UPS game or the Ploops game or the Ups Blue game, whatever you want to call it. Regardless, PLU takes a two nothing lead on a safety early in the second quarter and holds that lead until Puget Sound scored with 4:25 left to win six to two. Uh, the NCAA doesn't track a record for lowest score in a non-shutout in a Division Three game, but we didn't find any games, uh, uh, any scores lower than that since 1999. However, even this odd score has happened at least three other times in the past 16 years, most recently in 2008 when uh, Westminster of Pennsylvania beat Allegheny. Really, everything does happen in Division Three. Yeah, and, and to further that, if, if you're a fan of just being a numbers geek and there was a 6-2 game on Saturday, there was also a 62-2 game. That's I think true. Witt, Wittenberg and uh, Oberlin? Oberlin. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yes. That... Um, for my stat of the week, should I go six interceptions here? All right, I'm just kidding. Uh, Mountain Union is dominating stats. They tend to make my eyes glaze, glaze over, not because they aren't amazing or worthy of recognition, but because there's nothing surprising or unexpected about them. But here's one that caught my eye. Mount Union senior defensive lineman Tom Lally had two and a half sacks to tie the Raiders' career record with 31 and a half and lead a unit that held Otterbein to three first downs and 46 total yards. For all the great defensive players who have come through the Purple Raiders program, from Vince Karras himself, who's now the coach, to B.J. Payne, Justin Stickley, Matt Kostelnik, Nick Driscoll, Matt Campbell, now a head coach in D1, Charles Diesel, Joe Millings, and James Herbert, uh, that's a pretty impressive accomplishment for Lally. It happened in the Purple Raiders shutout number five. That defense has surrendered only 31 points in three 
uh, of the eight games this season. Uh, the other five have been shutouts. Oh, and, uh, you know, by the way, Mount Union won for the 750th time. It was their 101st win in a row in the regular season, 90th in a row at home, and they still haven't lost an OAC game since 2005. Their opponents do get more interesting next week as they close the season with 6-2 and two, Baldwin Wallace and 6-2 and two, John Carroll. And, and while we're mentioning sacks for stats of the week, uh, I'm going to give shouts to the St. Thomas defense for having eight against Concordia Moorhead, a feat made all the more amazing when you recognize that the Cobbers don't really like to throw that often. They only had 18 pass attempts in Saturday's game. One of the things about living in Minneapolis is that if, if I'm home and watching other games uh, on the laptop, which I was because I really wanted to watch Harden Simmons, Mary Harden Baylor, I can also tune in uh, on the radio, the St. Thomas game on the biggest radio station in the state. And I was listening to uh, the final couple minutes of the first half. Um, Concordia has the ball. Uh, they get sacked on second down. Uh, they get sacked on third down. St. Thomas calls a timeout to preserve clock with about 40 seconds left. And then the, uh, the Concordia punter drops the snap. Uh, and uh, St. Thomas is in the end zone like one play later. Just a, a, an amazing way in which a couple of sacks kind of turned things around, um, you know, made it, uh, made it useful to call that timeout, and then they got another seven points on the board. And what I think was a 28-point second quarter, I, that's on the website. You guys can look at that and tell me if I'm wrong. Let's see. Uh, things, other things we were wrong about. How about uh, triple take, uh, the, uh, the spot where uh, we go through our – uh, predictions from uh, Friday morning and either gives our, give ourselves a pat on the back or a smack upside the head. And uh, let's see, Keith, you, uh, you picked the correct game of the week, Her- uh, Harden-Simmons, Mary Harden-Baylor, but otherwise kind of all over the board. Uh, Hamlin won, but as we mentioned, not comfortably, needing that uh, touchdown with 20 seconds left. Loris Dubuque was a 35-point margin and not surprisingly close. Uh, Case Western Reserve, not particularly close to being upset, uh, certainly not in the final 30 minutes, nor was WNL, uh, which was Ryan's pick, and uh, they were a 42-14 to winner over Emory and Henry. Uh, Ryan wow. took a flyer on Endicott, but uh, missed just barely. Uh, Gulls lost to Western New England 19-13, and uh, let's see, WNE did improve to 8-0, but if Endicott, which uh, fell to 3-5, and had won and uh, gotten itself into the playoff picture or Western New England out of the coaches' top 25, that could have been triple-take prediction of the year. <laughs> well, there were some good predictions, so uh, please do check us out on Friday mornings because uh, we'll miss badly. We'll also hit some. Uh, Keith, uh, Keith, me, that's me. That is you. Uh, Pat and I, we each we each hit teams uh, that could greatly improve their playoff chances um, with uh, Albion and, and WNL. Uh, Ryan and I both picked the, the Battle of the Hardens. I don't think we call it that, but I, I decided to write that. Yeah, uh, why as, not? As game, Let's go as with game that. of the week. Let's go with that. Battle of the Hardens. Yeah, Mary Harden, Baylor Harden, Simmons, uh, hyphens in there too. Uh, that lived up to its billing, so we were both correct on uh, on game of the week. I also picked DePaul to remain on the playoff fringes, while uh, while Pat, you and Ryan, you barely missed with your picks. Uh, Frostburg State was a 15-6 loser to Rowan. Uh, they had been a one-loss team up until Saturday, and Gustavus actually led Bethel 24-20 late in the third quarter before losing 30-24. That was a decent pick by you, Pat, even though you missed it. And uh, you did correctly pick number 20, Cortland State, to be upset, although in your pick you said <laughs> Empire 8 kind of easy pickings for, for someone to lose because everyone in that conference beats everyone else. And uh, two Pats on the back for you, Pat, for calling the Finlandia win and making sure we mention the new program once each week. I am so good at lightning rounds! The Hancock, Michigan Chamber of Commerce thanks this once again. All right, lightning round. I'm going to start it off by highlighting a punter. That's uh, Justin Foley of Bates, who punted nine times and landed seven of them inside the 20. Uh, that includes punts that landed at the two and one yard line. And the Bobcats, bet definitely, they needed all of that as they beat Colby by the score of 10 to 9. Yeah, and that's the first leg of the CBB rivalry uh, for the three NESCAC schools in Maine. Leg, uh, leg very nice. <laughs> um, staying in the... Uh, in the NESCAC for the second week in a row, Williams has had a long string of dominance over a single opponent snapped. Last week, it was Tufts winning at Williams for the first time since 1981. And this week, Hamilton defeated Williams for the first time since 1996. The Continentals won at Williams for the first time since 1986. And uh, they also won for the first time since the middle of 2012. They beat Bowdoin by one point uh, on October 13th of that year. And they won by three uh, against Williams on Saturday. 
Uh, co- two, two teams and two coaches going in opposite directions, but Dave Murray definitely has Hamilton playing uh, pr- playing pretty well, especially considering their recent history. Uh, and the coaching carousel is already definitely starting to spin. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Howard Payne coach Roger Geis announced his retirement at the end of the season, and uh, earlier this week it was Mark Matlack, the coach at Allegheny, who did the same. Neither of these uh, has the impact of necessarily a Frank Beamer, but Matlack was surprisingly the winningest and longest tenured coach in Allegheny football history. Uh, that program, though, Keith, has fallen on such hard times. The Gators couldn't even get a win versus Hiram on Saturday for Matlack in his final home game, and the Terriers won that game 43-13. to Yeah, ouch. Well, we've kind of hit this one earlier on the podcast, but uh, this is my weekly reminder of how large Division Three is. Uh, with 14 unbeaten teams remaining and just 28 more with one loss, that's 42 teams with zero or one blemish on their records, vying for the 32 playoff spots and 25 slots in the top 25. And that doesn't include the 35 or 40 teams like North Central, which has three losses after playing an insane schedule but remains ranked and in the hunt for their conference's automatic qualifier. So if you want to tweet at us this week, why does RPI, do they have a playoff shot at 6-2? and two? Does um, uh, Is Hampton-Sydney in the mix still? Is, is Platteville in the mix still? There are lots of 6-2 and two teams across the country, and uh, they're pretty much – um, right now, unless you see a lot of a lot of teams lose in week ten or week eleven, those teams pretty much uh, have no chance of getting an automatic, uh, not automatic bid, at large bid. Uh, we have seen crazier things happen in the final couple of weeks, but right now it's a pretty strong pool C field. There are just way more teams uh, than there are spots for them in the playoffs. Uh, one last lightning round entry here. Car- Carnegie Mellon might not be known for putting up huge scores, at least not in this decade or maybe the previous one, but the 73 points the Tartans scored Saturday versus Teal were the most Carnegie Mellon has scored since Carnegie Tech scored 88 in 1915, a century ago, in an 88 nothing win versus Waynesburg. Uh, just as a reminder of how long ago that was, Carnegie went 7-1 in 1915 with its only loss to Pitt, crosstown rival Pitt, uh, and they beat both Case and Western Reserve uh, that season. Other than Pitt, though, the rest of the Carnegie 1915 schedule could get lifted straight out of the season. They beat Teal, they beat Waynesburg, they beat Allegheny, they beat Grove City, they beat Hiram, and they beat both Case and Western Reserve before those institutions later merged. Yeah, that's a great pull to get to go back 100 years uh, and pull out Carnegie Tech and also when Case and Western Reserve were not the uh, same team. Yeah, this is what uh, this is what you get when I start digging through papers looking for stuff on uh, on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, a little bye week, and we have a, we have all afternoon to uh, to work, so I don't have to, to be on NFL duty. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, let's look ahead to next week. We've got some big games coming up, obviously, uh, and and uh, you know, so one automatic bid was handed out on Saturday. One of those twenty five uh, Saint Scholastica won the Upper Midwest Athletic Conference, which means over the next two weeks we have twenty four more to go. And uh, some of the games that will help determine those. Uh, getting played this week uh for example we've already mentioned wheaton playing illinois wesleyan uh salisbury is at wesley that's a game that's always been big it's a bit a a big rivalry the route 13 rivalry but this year uh, with njac playoff considerations not empire 8 or acfc or pool b or anything else um and then also keith you know this is a game that uh, we would not really have uh spotlighted at the beginning of the year as having playoff implications but thomas moore going to case western reserve and the pack titles on the line here yeah, imagine that. Thomas Moore, 9-0. and They uh, haven't had a bye week yet, so they're a week ahead of everyone. Case Western Reserve is 7-1 uh, and one and, and um, playing surprisingly well. I, I think, you know, you, you look at the pack, you think it's Thomas Moore and W&J at the top and then maybe somebody else, whether it's, you know, Waynesburg or, or whoever on a given season, maybe they, uh, they emerge. Um, this now, it, it's just rare that because that Thomas Moore WJ game is so early in the season, uh, it's rare to have so much intrigue at the end of the year in the pack. So that'll be cool. Uh, obviously, uh, the NJAC let the New York teams go, brought in some teams from Maryland and Delaware, and still the, the de facto title game being played out of state. Uh, the, the New Jersey Athletic Conference uh, can't get a New Jersey team in the mix. That's right. The uh, the road to the inject hell goes through Dover, Delaware, although not that surprising. I think we probably all would have picked that when uh, when that announcement was made about a year and a half ago. Um, we mentioned earlier that this does not necessarily wrap up all of the Mac machinations, but Albright is at Stevenson uh, this upcoming week. Uh, I know Delaware Valley, I just know they play Widener at the end of the season. Uh, I, um, so that's a game that uh, could trip them up um, because nobody in that league is uh, is completely unbeatable. Uh, and the uh, the USA South comes down to possibly comes down to this week's game. 
Uh, so Maryville plays at Huntington, and uh, that's a game where there's a possibility that that could decide the title this weekend. Yeah, Huntington can clinch with a win. Uh, Maryville can clinch with a win and a win or Huntington loss in Week 11. So uh, if Huntington wins, we have a team in the mix. If not, we'll have to watch Week 11. In the MAC, I think we'll be watching until Week 11 either way. But um, but you mentioned the Albright at Stevenson game this week, Widener at DelVal uh, in Week 11. Those are all big games. Right now, three-way tie atop that conference, Stevenson, Albright, DelVal, all 7-1 and one and 6-1. and one. And who knew back in Week 2 when, when Wilkes yeah. beat DelVal 12-7 that that would be the game right now that's hanging up this uh, the, the tie atop the conference? craziness we got a pretty similar situation uh to the usa south in the mascac mascac getting an automatic bid in football this year for the first time and uh framingham state and uh, bridgewater are facing off on saturday in that one uh framingham clinches with the win bridgewater can win the title with a win on saturday and a win or framingham loss in uh in week 11 and we've got some other games where uh teams could clinch uh, teams maybe not clinch. Uh, I'm just going to run through some of these. I'll every once in a while I'll stop, and Keith will offer some uh, perspective and some analysis on this. For example, the Hobart at St. Lawrence game, which was a game that we identified at the beginning of the season would be important, but did not expect the way the season would run out. It would end up like this. Yeah, surprising to see Hobart five and three, and really just playing spoiler right now to St. Lawrence's hopes. Um, uh, it's RPI and. Um, yeah, it's RPI that's that's hoping for Saint for Hobart to pull off the upset here because uh, they're a spot behind St. Lawrence, and to be honest, they have a head head loss with St. Lawrence. So uh, so really, um, the uh, it's really the Saints' chance to clinch here and uh, and get back at Hobart for a 29-27 loss last season. A couple of the big games in the MIAC coming up this week. Uh, St. John's is at Bethel. Concordia Mellon. Uh, Concordia Mellon. See, I've got that in my head now. Concordia Moorhead is at Gustavus. Uh, St. Thomas, which is at the top of the conference, they host Carlton. And uh, if I look at back at my uh, standings correctly here, yeah, St. Thomas can uh, can clinch with a win on Saturday, but these other two games are important as well. Hey, man, at least you didn't say Concordia Tech, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to come up with one more. I, I can't come up with another. Uh, yeah. Moorhead State. No, I don't know. There you go. Um, look, the Mayak, I mean, how amazing is it to have a conference with pretty much five relevant teams at, at this part of the season? You got St. Thomas out in front, 8-0. St. John's probably, like I, we said way earlier on the podcast, pretty good pool C chance at 7-1. and one. Gustavus and Concordia Moorhead, uh, each 7-2. and two. And Bethel, 5-3. and three. Uh, four and two overall, but still relevant, and 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 some of their results will factor into the playoff picture. Bethel's also relevant because they can spoil things for St. John's. They host the Johnnies this week. Uh, you mentioned, of course, Concordia Moya goes to Gustavus, and then Week Eleven, uh, St. Thomas is at Gustavus, and uh, halfway through that that Gustavus uh, where they won the first six and lost the the final four last season, and then we hoped or wondered if they could break that uh that that tradition this year they are two games in they've lost both the games and they finish again concordia Moorhead and st thomas yeah i tell you if uh if an eight and two gustavus is on the board that's a, a very interesting uh couple of weeks that they would have had down the stretch um harden simmons versus east texas baptist this week keith uh you know obviously an automatic bid's not on the line here harden simmons has to pretty much win everything uh, in order to really maintain its uh, maintain its spot or maintain its seating or you know who even knows what the way uh, the seatings and stuff will affect Texas but Harden Simmons without an automatic bid needs to just keep winning yeah and and if it doesn't win this game and this is another one that we wouldn't have circled at the beginning of the year uh, thinking it was a huge game but if Harden Simmons doesn't win this then things get very interesting because the next best pool B team is is Mary Harden Baylor but Harden-Simmons has a head-to-head win over them, so maybe Harden-Simmons remains the team. Uh, but maybe it opens up the door for some other teams in Texas. Uh, Texas Lutheran and Trinity, Texas, are, are both 6-2, and two, although they have a lot of head-to-head results between the two of them. And, and East, Texas, East Texas Baptist is 6-2 and two, um, with a chance you know, to, to play Harden-Simmons and Mary Harden-Baylor in the final two weeks. So uh, by some stretch of the imagination, if they win both games, uh, you know, they'd maybe be the Pool B team. Let's see, a couple of teams can uh, can clinch with wins on Saturday. We mentioned Baldwin-Wallace at Mount Union. If Mount Union wins, then they uh, wrap up the OAC title. Similarly, uh, Linfield as they host Puget Sound. And I believe, if I remember correctly, too, Johns Hopkins can win, uh, can clinch the Centennial if they beat uh, F&M on Saturday, right? 
Yeah, because the closest contender is Moravian. Hopkins already has a win over over Moravian, and, and there just aren't enough games left in the season um, for for Moravian to catch them if Hopkins wins on Saturday. And also, uh, Moravian has a pretty tough Week Eleven matchup with Muhlenberg, which is uh, six and two, I believe, at this point. But um, that rivalry has been not a very good one for for several years now. The Lehigh Valley. Uh, really high river valley game uh, I don't know if that's actually the name of it or just what I call it but um, uh, this year at least uh, at the very least Moravian and Muhlenberg will make it interesting Hopkins very likely to clinch um, uh, this weekend Franklin Marshall will have to play well uh, let's see we've talked about this game a couple of times already Hampton Sydney is at Guilford uh, Guilford needs to win to maintain its one loss status and have a, a shot at an at-large bid and uh, they certainly need the strength of schedule boost they would get from playing Hampton Sydney uh, Western New England is at, is at Coast Guard and uh, and uh, there's still three teams with one loss or less in the uh, NEFC and Western New England is still unbeaten at the top so there's a lot left to be decided there uh, meanwhile a couple ones we haven't talked about uh, let's see, uh, in the, uh, the NAC, the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference, uh, Lakeland and Benedictine, are both undefeated in the conference. They play head-to-head in Week 11. It actually doesn't even matter what either of those teams does on Saturday. The head-to-head winner in Week 11 would go on. Uh, in the Skyac, uh, Laverne will quench the automatic bid with any win or a loss by Claremont Mud Scripps in the final two games for each of those teams. Um, Albion, uh, you mentioned Albion. They're basically in position to win. They have just one conference game left. Uh, so as long as they beat Alma, they uh, they they win. It's a, it's a pretty easy scenario, even though it it eventually w- would possibly involve a three way tie. Yeah, Trine and, and Olivet are in the mix if you look at the standings. But every way the tiebreakers shake out, whether you kick Trine out of there once you go down the tiebreaker list, or if Trine uh, ends up losing, uh, they still have to play Adrian. Uh, every way that it breaks, uh, Albion ends up on top. Yeah, so as long as Albion beats Alma, they uh, they clinch a, a return to the uh, NCAA playoffs. Uh, we talked about the USA South. Uh, we talked about the Upper Midwest Athletic Conference with St. Scholastica, and we have a title game pairing set for the Midwest Conference where it will be St. Norbert uh, hosting and representing the North Division uh, facing off against Monmouth. And again, it doesn't matter actually what either of those teams does on Saturday. They're both guaranteed to play for the Midwest Conference title, the only 12-team conference in Division Three, and of course that means they get to play a title game. Yeah, we they finally broke up the the 16 team Nefsi a few years ago, and they had a, a kind of cool Week 11 title game. But uh, in the Midwest Conference, just like old times, the Green Knights and Scots. Uh, and that was the Around the Nation podcast number 140 for the week of November 2, 2015. Thanks for listening, and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. Remember, if you like our podcast, please uh, rate it, share it, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your friends' neighbors, because we can help other Division Three football fans find it. And thanks for following Division Three football on d3football.com. And nominate your plays of the week, and nominate your players for team of the week, and all of those other great things that we have. <laughs>